that was their template that the dominant culture is bad and the minority culture has been persecuted. So we need to lift up the minority culture. That was the thinking in the 60s and the 70s. When they looked at India, India is a very unique case in that sense. For the longest time, for almost a millennium, the minority culture was the culture that was the dominant culture. Since the 1200s, after the Delhi Sultanate was set up, at least in northern India, the Muslims were the dominant class. And when the British uh, came and grabbed India, it was the British that were the dominant class. It was the, so in, it was initially the Muslims that discriminated against the non-Muslims in India after, after the Delhi Sultanate. And when the British came to power, it was the British that were discriminating against the non-British in India. So they didn't bother to really understand India's history. And they said, okay, currently, let's look at India right now in the 60s and the 70s. Who's the dominant culture? The Hindus. Who's, well, who's the majority culture? Not the dominant culture, but who's the majority culture? Hindus. Okay, so according to our template, Hindus bad. So Hindus are now bad, and there's no need to understand the history here. There's no need to understand the nuance here because we don't have the time and we're not bothered. So we'll just say Hindus bad, and who are the minorities? Okay, Muslims. Muslims good. So from now on, henceforth, Hindus bad, Hindus need to be criticized at every turn, just like, you know, in America, white bad, white needs to be criticized for everything. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Samir Kalra talks with YouTube talk show host Sham Sharma about the state of Hindu phobia in the media and politics. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Hindu American Foundation's That's So Hindu podcast. Uh, we're really pleased to be joined today by Sham Sharma, the host and creator of the Sham Sharma show on YouTube, which I believe has a following now of over 164,000 subscribers, if that's correct. Um, and uh, the Sham Sharma show is, is part of its stated goal is to fight anti-Hindu bias and Hindu phobia in India, the US, ac- academia, and globally. Uh, so we're really pleased to be joined today by Sham Sharma. Welcome, Sham. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Amit. Thanks a lot for having me on. Great, great. So, Sham, I just want to kind of really step back for a minute before we get into some of the meat of the issues today and really find out what was, you know, the motivation for starting this show. Um, You know, there have been obviously you know, issues around Hindu phobia and anti-Hindu bias that we've been dealing with at the Hindu American Foundation since really our inception. Um, but I'm really curious to hear about what really motivated you. Was there some specific incident, some issue that you kind of saw being dealt with in a particular manner that said, hey, you know what, I got to do something about this? Yeah, it it was kind of gradual. It wasn't something overnight because it, it started occurring to me Uh, when I went to study my undergrad uh, that was at Delhi University and I was at Hindu college and St. Stephen's was right across the street from me. So I had some friends from St. Stephen's and uh, some friends from Hindu college that would talk about India in a way and that would talk about, you know, Hinduism, sort of India's native culture in a way that I thought, all right, I mean, you know, criticism is fine and everything, but I, at at a point, it just becomes a blatant lie, some of the things that you guys are saying. And there was barely any challenge to them when they would say things like this. They were in their little bubble and they would, you know, spend their time sort of agreeing with each other. And I happened to be in the same friend group as some of those people. And I was just like, this is a strange, this is a strange experience for me. You know, this is not something that I've been particularly used to. So that was something that got me thinking. And then when I moved to New Zealand, some of the discourse about India, about Indians, about Hindus in New Zealand was not very dissimilar to the discourse that I heard in that friend circle uh, in Delhi University. Then I was like, all right, so it, it, it's not localized in Delhi. It's sort of, it's more pervasive than I thought it is. And a lot of this that they're talking about with such conviction and with such confidence is completely untrue. Uh, so, you know, that sort of cemented it more in my head that maybe it's more pervasive. And then when I moved to the U S then it amplified even more. 
And I was like, well, most people here, and even people that are not openly antagonistic towards India or Hindus, even those people, people that are friendly towards India and Indians, they have certain incredible ideas in their minds about what India is, about what Indians are, about what Hindus are, that it's, it's almost incredible. They have this strange caricature of India and Indians and Hindus in their brains, which is, you know, that, that caricature probably formed like 40, 50 years ago, and it hasn't updated itself at all. And so when I started seeing, you know, things about India in the American media, things about Modi, things about Hindus in the American media, and it's sort of getting repeated in the Indian media as well. I was like, all right, there's a lot of misinformation out there that needs correcting. And I've been talking to my friends and my family about this kind of stuff, you know, group about eight people. I wonder what will happen if I start talking about this stuff more openly and more publicly. And I wonder if it'll make any kind of difference. I wonder if people would even like listening to a mug like mine. So there was, there was a lot of things that I was like, all right, let's, let's just give it a try and, and see where we end up. And that was basically the motivation behind creating the channel. And have you been surprised by the reception that you've received? Um, I mean, it's pretty impressive. Um, 164,000 subscribers, especially given the glut of content that's out there on YouTube and other platforms in general. I have been, certainly. I mean, I'm very humbled by the reaction that I've seen from certain people uh, when they watch my videos and what they say. Um, so yeah, definitely. The reaction's been surprising. I had no idea. For for the longest time, I was I was stuck on around you know, 10,000 subscribers. And I was like, all right, that's, that's probably where it's going to be. And then uh, when the growth started happening, it, it, it really did surprise me. And what was surprising was that it's not just people in India that are listening. You know, it, it's people outside of India that are interested in listening to this kind of stuff about India from an Indian's mouth as well. So that's, that's been very interesting. And that's really put a sort of seed in my head as to branching out the content that I do away from more Hindi focused to sort of a 50-50 Hindi-English mix. Mm -hmm. And, you know, would you say that um, what you found is that people that have been listening to what your, um, you know, your podcast and your show, that they are familiar with these issues or do you feel you're educating them on them as well? And then maybe they haven't thought about it from that perspective. Or is this something that you think that the broader diaspora um, is very attuned to and they're sensitive about um, some of this, you know, inherent bias that's there? Part of the, so in India, people are, are slightly better educated about some of the issues that uh, I discuss, but in the diaspora, so to say, there are people that are aware of these issues, but not necessarily educated on these issues. And that's what I've felt ever since I moved out of India is people know about these issues on a, on a sort of superficial level. They've heard about it. They've read articles online and headlines on Facebook. But that's that's the extent of their knowledge, and they make up their minds completely, and they're they're completely convinced in in their opinion just by reading a few, uh, you know, Facebook articles, just by listening to a few YouTube hot takes from you know comedians and whatnot. So that's what I found is that even though they're not educated, they're almost entirely convinced about their opinions. Mm -hmm. um, and so moving a little bit more specifically to the U.S. and the American audience, um, you know, do you feel that people here in the U.S., Hindu Americans in particular, um, and, and I'm not sure the demographic that you're dealing with in terms of age range, et cetera, but um, how do they view these issues um, you know, in particular? Do they see this as um, a construct of you know, just the Western interpretation of things happening in India and then that's reported? down and trickles down to mainstream media and culture here in the US? Or do they understand that there's also, you know, something going on in India within the specific university system and the larger kind of sphere of academia, activists, um, etc.? I think there's a bit of a split. What I've what I've noticed, and this is this is I'm just using this as a general rule of thumb and it's not an exact science. 
But uh, what I've what I've noticed from my YouTube videos among the people living in the U.S., the, especially Indians, Hindu Americans living in the U.S., is that there's there's two kinds almost. There's the first generation that have sort of moved here, uh, and you know are you know making their living here in the United States, and they've they've accepted the United States as their as their home country, but they still have this emotional connection to India. So these are people who are willing to, who are more willing, I, I would say, to look at the nuance of a situation, for instance, and I know we'll come to it, uh, for instance, an issue like Kashmir, an issue like Ayodhya, and even even like an issue like the BJP and what the BJP is. Even on things like that, they're more willing to uh, hear the other side of the aisle, hear from the other side of the aisle, hear the other side of the story and have a little more nuance in this situation. Whereas some of the more strident reactions that I've seen have been from people that are that were either born in the U.S. or moved to the U.S. when they were very very young, and so they've grown up in you know these big cities in in, in these liberal strongholds in the United States, and that is what has defined their worldview. And there's nothing inherently wrong with growing up in in a liberal city, but I mean that's basically what's defined their worldview and they have a much more strident view on all of these issues on all of these issues if they're they're not willing to hear the other side of the story more often it it's more like all right if you're presenting the other side of the story then you have this pernicious agenda that means that you hate people that are not hindus that means that you want india to become this you know hindu only nation and purge all minorities out of the country so that's what I've noticed in whatever little experience that I've had, uh, sort of looking at the comments, interacting with the Indian American community. And you kind of touched on a, an issue there that we've kind of really seen is that, you know, anytime you, you know, when people have such strident issues, whether they're from the community or outside, they perceive, and it seems to be really a lot more with the Hindu American community or Hindus in general, that if you say something positive about something that's happening in India, you say something positive about Prime Minister Modi, regardless of whether it has to do with like sanitation or infrastructure, then automatically you must be a nationalist. You must be an extremist walking around wearing saffron with a trident in your hand. I mean, the views and the extent of, you know, um, I would say hypocrisy that's there, you know, with how Hindus are allowed to talk about their culture, are allowed to talk about events in India um, and issues and whether political, cultural or religious in India seems to be really, um, I, I would say it's, it's, it's a little crazy and it's a really disturbing um, to, to say the least. It really is. It really is. Because, and it's sadly, it's not something that's unique to the United States. I mean, that, that you see that in India in a lot of circles as well. That's something that India is dealing with in a serious way on a regular basis as well, is just people that, and this is obviously to an extent a product of the, you know, the evolution of social media that people have become more strident in their opinions and more sort of convinced in their lack of education. But yeah, that's, that's something that I've certainly noticed in the US at least is that any kind of uh, you know, any kind of movement away from what is the accepted doctrine in the United States about India, about Modi, about Kashmir, about Ayodhya. If you move away from the doctrine in any way, then you're, then you're a complete persona non grata. There's no, there's no element of, all right, let's hear you out. All right, tell me more. All right, well, maybe, maybe you do have a point. All right, maybe I didn't look at it look at it that way. It's none of that ever happens. So when I make a video, let's say on Kashmir, let's take one example. When I when I made a video on Kashmir, when I started looking at this whole issue, when I started looking at the complaints that people in the United States, you know, Indians, Hindus, non-Indians, non-Hindus, everybody that, that 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 some of the complaints that they have about the action that the government took in Kashmir, there was almost zero discussion on the provisions of Article 370 and what Article 370 did to many people of Kashmir, many people that lived in Jammu and Kashmir. It was almost this myopic view of Kashmir as if Kashmir was only the small Kashmir Valley. The Kashmir Valley is like one-tenth of the state of Jammu and Kashmir. There's a, it's a massive state. 
And there are other people that live in that state as well that were almost completely disenfranchised by the provisions of Article 370 that concentrated power in the hands of these powerful Kashmiri Muslim families, essentially. And so there was no discussion of that. And if you pointed that out, you somehow, you know, did not care about the Kashmiri Muslims of Kashmir, you know. And even if you point out that, well, okay, speaking about Muslims only, you know, there's a pretty significant chunk of population of Ladakh that is Shia, and they are Shia Muslims. And they have been asking for the bifurcation of the state of Jammu and Kashmir. And they've been asking that they made a union territory so that they can have some control over their own destiny. And when you mention that, that, okay, what about these Shia Muslims who've been asking for a separate statehood? Well, no, no, you're obfuscating the matter. You're taking away attention from the plight of the Muslims. And when you get in a situation like that, where you've buried your head in the sand, you're not willing to listen to any other sort of opinions, then you pretty much stop any conversation in its tracks. And so you just see this, you know, kind of mudslinging match that we've been seeing over Kashmir since, you know, since August. Sure. And, you know, I think, you know, if I were to look at that, you know, particular example, you can see and maybe understand why the activist types are going to promote a certain view on Kashmir and they maybe want to not think about the nuance of the other side of it because they have a specific agenda. Um, that they're trying to push. But what do you think it is with maybe the larger, um, you know, societal reaction to it? Why do you think that there's a larger unwillingness to kind of see the gray in an issue that is extremely, extremely complicated, um, as opposed to just Hindus bad, Muslims good at being persecuted? I mean, that's what it's really been boiled down to. Um, you know, we did an analysis of media coverage of Kashmir. And, you know, I think maybe one or two articles, maybe. Um, out of dozens actually mentioned the issue of the ethnic cleansing of Kashmiri Hindus from the valley. Um, none of them talked about, as you mentioned, Ladakh or the, the religious demography um, or what's happening in Jammu and how people have been marginalized there as well. Or even the fact that Muslims themselves in the Kashmir Valley have been suffering at the hands of terrorist violence. And a lot of the conditions that are there now are a result of um, dictates from melting groups themselves, as opposed to something that the government is doing. So what do you think the cause for that is in terms of an unwillingness to hear those sides of the story from the large audience, whether it's media, even members of Congress? I mean, we've seen numerous statements coming out on Kashmir from members of Congress that are extremely one-sided, um, that fail to um, talk about you know the broader issues, the problems with 370 and 35A, and some of the other um, you know historical as well as contemporary issues that are going on there. Yeah, I think I think there's so many issues involved in there as well. I think one of the issues is seeing the world in a very binary way, which is very which is understandable from a U.S. perspective because the U.S. looks at it, looks at, or the general U.S. audience looks at everything is left-wing, right-wing, left-wing, right-wing. Everything is left-wing, right-wing. Everything is Democrats and Republicans. So they, because they view their own country in this way, that they apply this template onto every other nation they look at. So they apply this template onto India. So Congress is the Democrats. BJP is the Republicans. So Democrats are inherently good in the discourse. Democrats are inherently good. So Congress is inherently good. Republicans are inherently bad. So BJP is inherently bad, even though the BJP and the Republicans are very different. Just go look at the BJP manifesto and go look at the Republican manifesto. And there are massive differences, especially in terms of economy. There is no right wing when you talk about economic policies in India, there is no economic right wing in India, whereas the economic right wing in America is very strong. So there are massive differences between organize, you know, and a political party like the BJP and a political organization like the Republicans. But that's not how people want to see it. People want to look at the world in, in a binary sense. So it makes sense to them. They can, they have a easier time understanding it. If you sit around and you look at the BJP's policies, what the BJP has done economically, economically, the BJP is a lot more similar to somebody like Bernie. If, if people sat down and thought about it for a second here, people that are reporting, you know, about the BJP and stuff, it would melt their brains. Like, what do you mean the BJP is just like, you know, Bernie in terms of a lot of its flagship policies? Like, the, it's very hard for them to be able to process. I thought the world was binary. I thought it was all black and white. 
So I think that's that's one of the things that a lot of American commentators or people that I see here speaking about the BJP is that, okay, for us to make sense of it better and for us to not have to think about it too deeply, let's just call BJP far right and we'll be done with it. Then we don't need any explaining to do. Because if you're a regular American and you're trying to understand what the hell the BJP is and you hear, oh, far right. Oh, what did the Washington Post call it? Oh, far right. Oh, what did the New York Times call it? Oh, far right. Okay. It's a far right fascist organization. Got it. So they're just trying to oversimplify this issue so they don't have to actually look at the nuance and not have to explain it to their people when they come around asking questions. Sure. Yeah, I guess it would uh, require a little bit of intellectual gymnastics to try to justify, you know, why Modi is more like a socialist in his policies, as opposed to somebody that's um, right wing. And even the social policies, um, it seems like nobody's talked about a lot of the social policies. Prior to even the abrogation of 370, there was the transgender um, or transsexual rights bill that came out. There was obviously the triple talaq bill that tried to end, um, you know, instant divorce and protect Muslim women. But again, <clears throat> either those issues are ignored or there's some way that people just kind of try to find a way to say, well, that's really a way to further marginalize Muslims, the larger Muslim populations by taking away some of their personal rights or personal law, um, you know, rights that they have under uh, Muslim personal law in India. So, you know, it seems that is that once the narrative has been set, um, it's very difficult to change that, even if you kind of point to evidence. Um, What do you think the way to kind of go about that is in trying to really change hearts and minds for lack of a better term? Because it seems like it's a really, it's uphill battle. I mean, once the people have their mindset, I mean, we face this on the Kashmir issue that, you know, when we were meeting with members of Congress and others trying to reach out to media, it's like, you know, as you said, they have their mind made up. They want to view things in very black and white. And so it's very difficult, it's been very difficult to actually get people to change and how they look at things or even open up their mind. Do you see any way that, you know, for the community at large that they can kind of approach that in a different way? Is there a different way to do that? I think there, I think it, in my opinion, the best way to do is try to have as many broad ranging conversations as possible. Like I recently couple of uh, couple of weeks ago I spoke to you know a couple of these progressive uh, platforms on YouTube and they again they had certain ideas about Kashmir they had heard and read certain things about Kashmir and so they wanted to talk to me about it because I was presenting a slightly different point of view so they wanted to talk to me about it and I went and spoke to them and you know I answered their questions to the best of my ability and they realize that, okay, maybe there are other sides to this issue than we've been told. So I think that's a very important thing is to, for us to try and have conversations with people who might not necessarily see eye to eye. And that's why this podcast sort of format becomes such an important format. Because if we, if we, you know, if let's say Hindu American Foundation was to go on some news channel and talk to some person there who's spouting all kinds of nonsense about Kashmir, Hindu American Foundation is probably going to get two minutes to put their point across, you know, and most likely they're going to get cut off in the middle. So there, then, then you're going to, then you're going to hear, you know, stuff in the news, like, Oh my God, so-and-so owned Hindu American Foundation on so-and-so TV because Hindu American Foundation did not get a chance to speak. And so, so that's, that's what happens on mainstream news. But I feel like, it's important for us now who have any kind of platform to try and reach out to people from other sides of the aisle. I mean, some people are completely unreasonable and they're not willing to speak. Fine. Uh, that's just part and parcel of life. But there are some people who are at least willing to sit down and give you the time of day and say, all right, maybe you can change my mind. Go ahead. And so it's important to talk to those people. And Social media, I think, has been such a boon in that sense that we don't need to now rely on the... Like, you and I, we don't need to rely on the New York Times to set the record straight. The New York Times can vomit whatever it needs to vomit, right? We can jo- we can just go talk to other uh, social media personalities, social media news organizations and stuff like that and put our point across. And, you know, slow. It, it's not going to be an overnight process. It's going to be a very painful and slow process. 
But I think the, the best thing that we can do is, is to hold these conversations. And then eventually at some point of time, when you start to build a little bit of consensus on this side of the, of the story as well, the, you know, the, the bigger sort of personalities will have no option really, but to take cognizance of it. Sure. Sure. And that's a great point. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, besides all the negativity, I mean, obviously the whole abrogation was a monumental step in India's history, in modern, modern history as an, as an independent nation. Um, and beyond, you know, the, the negative narratives that have come out in the West, I think one positive that I've really seen at least is that it's almost awakened the community here in the U S that they've kind of felt that, Hey, this is something that, you know, they're sick and tired of the negativity around this. Uh, but not just that, but they've actually become more active. Um, and whether that's been through participating more in um, advocacy and trying to talk to their members of Congress. I mean, people have organically gone and tried to talk. Now, whether that's resulted in anything positive coming from their members, you know, that's, you know, that maybe that's a different issue because, you know, they may be getting bombarded by thousands of calls from care or getting, you know, money from the uh, pro-Pakistan lobby. But the fact that they're actually taking those steps, I think to me is a little heartening and also that, you know, even if it's politically speaking, that people are, you know, saying, hey, let's put out our own candidates, you know, we're going to do something, at least we're doing something about it, right? I think it's, we were going from a more passive community, at least to being more active, where before the picture, the photo op with a member of Congress was enough. But now we're, hey, we're going to hold you at least accountable. Now, we may not succeed, but at least we're going to raise our issues with you. We're going to tell you that, hey, we're not happy that of the position you've taken on Kashmir and we're going to try to do something about it. And to me, you know, like you said, this doesn't change overnight and we're not going to be able to change hearts and minds overnight. But the fact that the community is becoming much more active in these um, arenas, I think to me is very heartening. I think Kashmir, the Kashmir issue really uh, was an avalanche that kind of um, really helped precipitate a lot of that. Do you see that the same way or do you kind of, have you sensed that there's been a lot more activism and, um, you know, activity after the abrogation of 370? What I've noticed for sure is that I think in terms of the reaction of the community, I think you might, you know, HAF might be better suited to answer that question than me who have, who has not had as much face-to-face -face interaction with uh, members of the community. But what I've noticed for sure is greater pushback. Uh, for sure, that's something that I've noticed is greater pushback in India and abroad uh, towards this sort of one-sided narrative building on Kashmir. Even people that you would not expect to, you know, uh, sort of support what the government did in Kashmir are coming out and saying, you know what, Overall, this was a positive move. There, you know, maybe there's some stuff that the BJP could have done better, so and so and so. But overall, restoring rights to a significant chunk of the population of a state can in no way be seen as a negative step. So that's something that I've definitely noticed as well. Another thing that I, I wonder, uh, Samir, that's contributed to the community sort of waking up and becoming a little more active is how people that they thought they entrusted to look after their interests have responded to uh, various issues, whether it's Kashmir, whether it's Ayodhya, whether it's whatever. Their response has been, you know, uh, quite disappointing in a lot of circles. You know, we were, the, the, you know, uh, when... Uh, they had this recent Kashmiri hearing. I think Pramila Jaipal was there at the hearing and the Kashmiri, the hearing basically was completely stacked against India. 100% stacked against. There was, you know, at the last moment, they got one Kashmiri Hindu to come and speak about it. But all the other members of the panel were virulently anti-India. So, you know, people were disappointed with that, the way that hearing was handled. People were disappointed with some of the statements that people like Rokhanna made about Kashmir, about Hindus, about Tulsi, and how he was, you know, promoting a deeply anti-India, a deeply anti-Hindu bigot. I mean, that's the only way that this person can be characterized. This is an anti-Hindu bigot. If you look at his previous activity, his protest signs and stuff like that, that's a that's a bigot in, in the true sense of the word. So when you're openly, you know, sharing a bigots, bigoted, full of falsehoods article and calling it important work, 
I can I can imagine being you know if I if I was an Indian that voted for that person I can imagine being very disappointed. So I think that also plays a part, and I and I'd like to hear what you think about that as well as to how much of a part that's played, where you know where even Modi and Trump decided that all right if if the Democrats are so desperate to lose the Indian vote, well we'll pick it up. You know, then they then they go do howdy Modi and Trump says, you know, so-and-so Modi is so great. And they, they make an active push towards taking some of these Democrat votes, these Indian votes away from the Democrats. No, absolutely. And I think um, it's been an uncritical um, support of um, and, and I don't want to kind of talk in broad strokes, but, you know, and, and I think, you know, we try to work with the Muslim community and there's a lot of good that many Muslims are doing. But I think the problem has been that many view within the Hindu American community, many view that Democrats are unquestioningly supporting Muslims wherever they are in the world, regardless of what the situation or context is without looking at it with a, from a nuanced perspective or saying, Hey, maybe there's two sides of this. Either let's just stay out of it or let's kind of do it in a more, let's make more balanced statements or let's get involved in a more balanced manner. But they are kind of, you know, unwilling to criticize anything that Muslims have done in any of these situations, any of these contexts. And I don't know if that's a larger fear of being, um, you know, uh, being accused of being Islamophobic, or if that's just because that's the pressure that they're getting, or that's just the direction of the party. But whatever it is, I think the Hindu American community is noticing it. And it's not a question of, okay, we are anti-Muslim. Just a question, hey, you know, we have a perspective, a valid perspective as well. You're not even giving us the time of day to listen to our perspective. You're automatically, you know, accepting the narrative that the, you know, that other groups are presenting Muslim groups that are presenting. And, you know, you mentioned the hearing, the hearing is a perfect example. Um, You actually had somebody there, Arthi Tiku Singh, who was on the ground in Kashmir as a journalist. Um, Yet you heard Democrat after Democrat talking up there about the conditions on the ground in Kashmir. And none of them (laughs) thought, Hey, maybe let me ask her a question about it. The one person that's been there. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's the disingenuous part, right? And there's a feigning concern about, oh, the communications blackouts, blackouts and, you know, un, unable to, you know, people being unable to get in touch with their relatives. I can understand that. Look, we all, I think, can agree that it was not a perfect situation. I think the end goal was good, right? Abrogating this, these discriminatory articles. No, of course, anytime you implement some, there's going to be bumps. There's going to be things that can be done better. But this focus on that and unwillingness to kind of really understand the complexity of the situation on the ground, what's actually happening with those communication blockouts. Let's talk to people that are actually there as opposed to just listening to what the New York Times is saying or to what Angana Chatterjee is saying or to Natasha Cole, you know, people that have quote unquote experts that were testifying that, that have known backgrounds to be very anti-India, anti-Hindu in their, um, in their rhetoric. Um, I think that's what really was disheartening to the community that, okay, you want to have people on that have opposing views. First of all, have respected people, have experts that actually, you know, have something credible to say, and then that's fine. But let's hear from other people as well that have been on the ground that are there, that are at our disposal. And so I think that was, I think, more to that they're not willing to listen is that the, it was a very disingenuous, it was a charade, basically. The, the whole it was a charade. It, charade. Was, it was interesting was because you had people there that if you go look in their social media profiles, they just like an Islamic prayer, five times a day, they'll say Modi is a fascist, India is a fascist country. And do you really want that person to come to your hearing and take that person seriously as an expert. Is that the level of expert that the United States now recognizes that the Democrats now recognize? Is that an expert in your eyes? Like any serious political commentator that you speak to, even if they despise Modi, you know, they, they will not come and I'm talking about a serious political commentator. They're not, they're not going to come and tell you that Modi is a fascist. They'll tell you that, okay, Modi has certain biases. Modi is doing this wrong. Modi is doing that wrong. But it is impossible for you to come and say Modi's a fascist, you know. There's absolutely no proof of that. So when you're inviting people to come and speak in uh, hearings, which are supposed to be taken seriously, when that person's entire, uh, you know, social media career is based around calling Modi fascist, calling Hindus racist, then how you expect that hearing to be taken seriously? 
by anybody who knows better. You know, you might be able to fool some people in America that have no idea what the hell is going on outside of American shores. But for people that know better, you're, they're going to look at this and they're going to be like, this is a joke. This is an absolute joke. How are we supposed to take anything that comes out of this hearing seriously? And that's the problem that I feel like uh, that's the danger that the Democrats run into because they, they see Hindus and Muslims as a zero-sum game, in my opinion, which I think is a terrible strategy. Why should Hindus and Muslims be seen as a zero-sum game? Why can't we look after both of them? You know, why can't we look after both of their interests? Is it a tacit, um, you know, acknowledgement from the Democrats that Muslim interests are completely, you know, unaligned with Hindu interests? Is that what they're telling us? When they say that, you know, we, we, we have to only look at the Kashmiri Muslims and what the Kashmiri Muslims are going through and ignore everybody else, then are you basically turning around and telling us that, you know, Muslim interests are completely opposite to what Hindu interests are? Hindus are not saying that. You know, Hindus are not coming out and saying that our interests are diametrically opposite to Muslim interests. Hindus have always said, we can exist in the same world as you. No problem. But, you know, once you start stepping on our throats a little bit, it gets problematic. But we have no problems in existing with each other. But it seems like Democrats think that Muslims have a problem in existing with Hindus or Muslim interests are opposite to Hindu interests. And I don't know if they're getting that from the Muslim community or they just think that has to be the case. Either way, I think it's very dangerous and it runs the risk of not only costing them politically, but in dividing, in creating a you know divide between the Hindu and Muslim community in America. Like you're, you're, you're essentially pitting them against each other. No, absolutely. And I think it's, it even goes beyond Kashmir. I mean, if you look at any issue that's talked about in India that's happening and whether it's the recent um, Ayodhya temple verdict uh, or the dispute over, you know, the temple versus the mosque there, um, everything seems to be, as you described it, just, you know, discussed and, um, you know, portrayed in a zero sum game, right? It's only, we can only support one group or we can only talk positively about one group, positively about one group. And one group is a good guys. One group is a bad guys, because it goes, again, it goes to that simple narrative that we want to create. And that's how the prism that's being used to look at any issue that comes up in India. So, I mean, if we're to, you know, talk about destruction of Native American sites in the U.S., ancient sites. Um, you know, nobody would have issues in talking about that from the perspective of, hey, there is a need to have restorative justice or there is a need to, you know, really deal with the wounds that have been created, um, whether it's that or even with slavery or any other issues. But in India, in the Indian context, the issue of the Babri Masjid, yes, no, nobody will agree with that it was torn down in 1992. I mean, I think that is an issue that, you know, no Hindu community member really agrees with. But the fact that nobody's willing to address the thousands of temples that were destroyed, the fact that this mosque was built on on top of a temple that was destroyed, and that unless these wounds are healed in India and we actually address the issue, that the Hindus and Muslims in India are not going to be able to move forward. And there's always going to be this sense that, um, you know, the, the way Hindus look at things that, you know, our issues are being, are not being addressed. And so, but if you look at articles, you know, any articles that came out here ahead of the verdict or after the verdict, nobody really talked about that issue. Again, it was 1992, uh, the uh, Babri Masjid was torn down by Hindu radicals, Hindu nationalists. This is, again, is part of a Hindu nationalist move under the Modi government where, you know, a Muslim, uh, a mosque, a Muslim site is being taken away and giving to Hindus. Um, and so it kind of then from the perspective of, you know, you know, myself or Hindu Americans that again plays into this view that it's a zero sum game. Hindus are bad. Anything that happens in India, Hindus must be responsible, right? They don't have a legitimate issue here. Um, and I think that's what we saw with Kashmir. That's what we're seeing with the Ayodhya issue. And I'm sure the next issue that's taken up in India, the next, you know, controversial move by the Modi government or, um, you know, big thing, which could be the revocation of the, you know, uh, the implementation of the uniform civil code mm. and actually moving India more in a secular direction, <laughs> again, is going to be discussed in a anti, you know, Hindus or anti-Muslim, um, perspective or prism. Um, so, you know, 
you know, obviously we talked about a little bit about how the Democrats are kind of viewing that um, and the media is viewing that. Um, do you see, though, that um, Hindu Americans um, are going to actually shift uh, more to Republicans? Um, do you feel that there's going to be, you know, an actual significant move that they're going to say away from Democrats and towards Republicans because of this perception? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. You know, there was a pretty strong support for, you know, when the whole Howdy Modi thing happened and uh, Modi, without really endorsing Trump, kind of gave like a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing uh, to the to the audience present there. And, you know, the Republicans have been making overtures towards the Indian population in in America. So... I think there might be some movement. I don't know if it's going to be significant enough to make the Democrats rethink their position on India. But, um, you know, judging by how close last time's election was, and if this time's election is close as well, then a couple of million people makes a big difference. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's that's going to happen. I think what the Democrats are also playing at is they're trying to consolidate you know, in, in their zero-sum game in their minds, what they're trying to do in their heads, that they're trying to consolidate the sort of Muslim vote by railing against India, by railing against Hindus, and by sort of being quiet about what's going on with, uh, with the Uyghurs in China. They're trying to sort of consolidate the Muslim vote because it's, it's a pretty significant voting block if you think about it. So... They're trying to lay their eggs in that basket. And, you know, we, we live in a, we also live in a time where questioning Muslims uh, on, on, on their culture and their certain cultural practices has become such a taboo topic. Not to say that, I'm not saying anti-Muslim bigotry is okay. It's a real thing and it's a bad thing. But what I'm saying is even asking good faith questions to the Muslim community about certain cultural beliefs, cultural practices has now become a, has now been seen as a racist thing. And that's what we're seeing with the Democrats in some sense as well. And that's a very dangerous thing because we've seen what happens when, when that, you know, when this attitude goes to its extreme, we saw horrendous, horrendous examples of it in England with the Rothram scandal, with the Rochdale scandal, with the Huddersfield scandal. There were many, many scandals where young British girls, you know, lost their dignity because the British people were too polite or the British police was too polite. They thought if we say something, people will call us racist. So let's just not say something. And that's kind of what we're seeing in America with the Democrats as well, is that, well, all right, if we disagree with the quote unquote Muslim stance on Kashmir, then people will think we're racist. And that's the worst crime in America today is, you know, being mistaken as a racist person. So let's just not get into that muddle. And that's the game that the Democrats are playing. And honestly, I don't see this game playing out in their favor in any way. You know, if, if the, the election of Trump, the election of a person like Trump, like take a step back and just think about who America elected, Right. They elected a freaking talk show host that would say one thing a week that would completely torpedo anyone else's campaign. But this guy became the president of, president of the United States because people were so sick of this social game that the Democrats were playing. that They're like, you know what? We'll vote for this guy over your person, you know? So I, I think, you know, the population in America was completely sick of that game that the Democrats were playing. And it appears, at least to me, that they have not stopped playing that game, that they're still playing that game. And if they intend to continue to play that game, I don't see it panning out for them positively in the 2020 elections either. Mm -hmm. But do you think this is bigger than just politics in that in the direction that our culture has gone in general and that Trump is maybe an overcorrection? Right. I mean, I think anytime anything goes too far in one direction... It's not just, you don't have just a normal correction back to the middle, right? It's, it has to go a little bit further before it can correct itself right. in a more balanced manner. And I think maybe Trump is an outgrowth of that. But I think, you know, in, in my view, there may be something more broader going on where, 
you know, it's not just, you know, um, confined to politics, but just in our broader culture that, you know, we talk about Muslims, but just in general, you cannot criticize anybody. Um, I don't even, I'm scared to go out and make a joke in public anymore, (laughs) you know, Uh, and it's, it has nothing to do with Hindu Muslim issues. It's just generally where our society has come. Um, and the culture has come, it, it feels like, you know, we're overly politically correct. We're overly scared about even having discussions. Anytime you say anything, you're automatically accused, as you mentioned, as a, being a racist or being a bigot. And therefore, you can't have open discussions about anything. So how can we even, as a culture, as a society, talk about issues, um, you know, in an open and honest manner and transparent manner if everybody is, you know, on, you know, basically feeling that on their best behavior that they can't really say anything openly. I mean, obviously nobody, you really don't want to say anything overtly racist, right? But there's a line. And I think, you know, I don't know where that line has gone, but it doesn't seem like there's any middle anymore. There's no middle. We don't have a middle in our society. anymore. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Trump was, the, the reason Trump got elected was because people felt that, you know, society has become so politically correct that we're going to elect the most politically incorrect guy we possibly can. So they said, okay, you want to go that way? We're going to go the complete opposite direction. We're going to just, you know, we're going to elect a guy who, who doesn't think with his brain, who he only thinks with his gut. That's the only thing he uses. So yeah, it, it definitely was a reaction against, you know, what you said, that sort of over politically correct uh, attitude that American society had developed and societies kind of developed across the globe. And even now, even after Trump's been in power for like almost four years, I feel like the Democrats or that, you know, the the quote unquote left can't really figure out what to do next. Like, should we come back to the middle? But back in 2016, we said the middle was a horrible place to be. Like, if you're in the middle, then you're a fascist. So can we really go back to the middle or should we just fight Trump? with a Trump of our own? Should we just get a crazy person of our own and put that person against Trump? So that's the, that's the sort of dialogue that I seem to, you know, the mental monologue that the Democrats are sort of having in their own heads right now that did we make a mistake by going too far left or should we go even more left or should we try to like move towards the middle now? I don't see a lot of moving towards the middle dialogue happening apart from people like, you know, you have people like Andrew Yang, you have people like Tulsi that carry more bipartisan appeal. So those are the people that want to go towards the middle, that want to get every American on board with their ideas. But then you also have the, the, the candidates that are sort of in the lead right now. Biden, I don't think is a viable candidate, but whoever, you know, if you look at Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, they're even more far to the left. So, so yeah, if, if they end up going with those guys, I don't know if the Democrats will do too well. I, I could be wrong. I was, I was obviously wrong about Trump. I didn't think Trump would win, but he actually bloody did. So, you know, so I, I, I don't know. So, but, but I think eventually the left has to realize that there's no more room to, for us to go left. We have to start coming towards the middle. There has to be some, some sort of overcorrection because society just cannot exist in this kind of, you know, state of conflict. Something has to give. Sure. And I think the majority of Americans are generally in the middle, right? I mean, we're maybe not the loudest voices or the ones that are dominating the Twitter sphere or other, you know, social media, cultural um, platforms. But I think majority of Americans want somebody that's in the middle, want somebody that's not going to be ideologically uh, beholden to either the left or the right. And somebody that's just going to put in common sense policies um, that are going to benefit all Americans. But unfortunately, that doesn't seem to, you know, make it onto the agenda or the platform of political candidates. Um, And traditionally used to see people maybe during the primary season would go further towards one direction and then pull back when the general election came. But I actually see a a scenario where they're just going to keep going in one direction and nobody's going to pull back to the middle anymore because that's just the perception of what's going to happen. And they're going to get, I think, a rude awakening when the actual elections take place. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I, I do feel like that. I, I feel like if they carry on the way they're carrying on right now, they might be in for yeah, a, a rude surprise come 2020. Great, great. So, you know, I just want to take it away um, from the elections again and uh, kind of get back to a little bit about Hindu phobia. Um, 
You know, I think when we started this discussion, one of the uh, topics we were talking about is what has fueled Hindu phobia. Um, has it been more about these Western narratives? Um, and that's something that we maybe see in like textbooks and, you know, the media and other spheres. Or do you think it's this um, this kind of group of academic activists in India, this Marxist philosophy that has, you know, been, you know, taken root um, for decades now and has kind of dominated a lot of the cultural and academic spaces in India. How do you see those two playing together in terms of feeling some of the bias against Hindus um, and Hinduism and descriptions of what Hinduism is, uh, because it seems very contradictory, right? I mean, if you talk about a lot of these Marxist movements are very anti-colonial in nature, but they're again perpetuating very typical colonial narratives about Hinduism and Hindus that are kind of steeped in caste cows and curry. Um, and so, how do, you, how do you see that interaction? I mean, is it the chicken and an egg? You know, you don't know which one came first, or they kind of played off each other. Um, you know, what, what, what's your view about what's kind of really fueled some of the anti-Hindu bias? I think something that, uh, Srikant Talagheri, I think he's a professor at uh, USC, I believe he wrote a book called, um, Rearming Hinduism. And he made a very good point in that book where he said that, you know, when the, in the, in the thirties and the forties around the world, the, the science and the history and the philosophy, it was all very it was all very like sort of white supremacist, very race based and looking down upon the other races and so on and so forth. But in the sixties and the seventies, when the sort of cultural revolution started happening and more diverse voices and more liberal voices started getting a seat at the table, they started talking about cultures that had been persecuted by these colonial powers. Um, so how they saw it was that they saw that the dominant culture in all of these countries uh, America, Britain, Australia, all, you know, Germany, all of these places where the, the dominant culture is the culture that was responsible for persecuting and discriminating against the minority cultures over there. So that was their template, that the dominant culture is bad and the minority culture has been persecuted, so we need to lift up the minority culture. That was the thinking in the 60s and the 70s. When they looked at India, India is a very unique case in that sense, whereas for, a, for, for, a, for the longest time, for almost a millennium, the minority culture was the culture that was the dominant culture. You know, for since the 1200s, after the Delhi Sultanate was set up, at least in northern India, the Muslims were the dominant class. And when the British uh, came and grabbed India, it was the British that were the dominant class. It was the, so in, it was initially the Muslims that discriminated against the non-Muslims in India after, after the Delhi Sultanate. And when the British came to power, it was the British that were discriminating against the non-British in India. So they didn't bother to really understand India's history. And they said, okay, currently, let's look at India right now in the 60s and the 70s. Who's the dominant culture? The Hindus. Who's, well, who's the majority culture? Not the dominant culture, but who's the majority culture? Hindus. Okay, so according to our template, Hindus bad. So Hindus are now bad, and there's no need to understand the history here. There's no need to understand the nuance here because we don't have the time and we're not bothered. So we'll just say Hindus bad, and who are the minorities? Okay, Muslims. Muslims good. So from now on, henceforth, Hindus bad, Hindus need to be criticized at every turn, just like, you know, in America, white bad, white needs to be criticized for everything. Um, and it's not apples to oranges, the white population in the US and the Hindu population in India, but that's the template that they apply. That, okay, now we cannot praise the Hindus or we cannot look at the Hindu side of the argument because looking at their side of the argument is fascism. So I feel like that was sort of, they, when, when the British were in power, they, you know, they put forward their own theories, which were very racist. But when the British lost power and the communists and the leftists came into power, they took up a very similar sort of stance when looking at Indian culture. So I feel like that's where the bias against Hindus exists, is that it exists everywhere. If you're a racist, you hate Hindus. You know, if you're a communist, you hate Hindus because you applied the same template that you applied in America over the Hindus. So, you know, it, it similar to the Jewish population, 
we're kind of, we kind of get it from all sides. And that, well, that's, I feel like one of the reasons why. Yeah. We're hated by everybody. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, you know, it, that's something that really kind of came, um, you know, close to home when we we're dealing with the textbook issues and reforms in the California textbook issues, um, which really started back in 2005, but really picked up again in 2016 through 2017. Um, and it was just very ironic to see these like progressive South or, you know, self-purported progressive South Asian activist groups promoting colonial era theories like Aryan invasion theory saying, no, Aryan invasion <laughs> theory happened. We need to keep it in the, in the textbooks or, you know, other like colonial narratives or interpretations of caste and other things. And the way they were kind of promoting this interpretation of Indian history of Hinduism, you couldn't, I couldn't tell the difference between that and the colonial narrative. And so it just it was very ironic is that people that were supposedly anti-colonial in their view, and in their academic studies were suddenly all lining up to support colonial theories about Hinduism in India. And we're trying very hard to kind of, you know, present Indian history and Hinduism in a way that everything was, again, in that dichotomy of, okay, Hindus did this and here's everybody that suffered from, right? You couldn't say anything positive about Hinduism. You couldn't say anything positive about Indian history. It was a continuous history of conflict of, and I guess this goes to the Marxist ideology of classed class conflict. Um, and you know, that's where they used to talk about caste as well. Um, despite, you know, obviously caste discrimination is something that's a reality, but to talk about it in a monolithic manner and kind of one way that it existed only one way throughout history in, in terms of, you know, talking about the differences in time periods or how it, you know, developed from the differences between Varna and Jati into the modern interpretation or, you know, the Portuguese interpretation of caste or casta, um, and to how the British interpreted it and kind of comp further complicated caste in India. It's like, nope, you can't do that one way, you know, here. So you have like caste <laughs> pyramid. Yeah. yeah. So you have a caste pyramid, Brahmins at the top, you know, Shudras at the bottom, and then you have the Dalits even below that. And so, you know, you were kind of dealing with this where you couldn't tell where the South Asian activist, um, you know, started and where colonialism, you know, uh, ended. And, um, you know, that was there and it was really eye opening to see that, you know, why are they trying to kind of keep these things in there? Fine. You want to talk about certain instances of discrimination. Okay. That's fine. Uh, we understand that, but you are only promoting negative things about Hinduism. And then you're talking about anytime we are trying to, you know, have a more nuanced view about caste. Oh, you're whitewashing history, but we don't want to talk about, you know, Muslim invasions into India. You know, that's, we want to be sensitive there about how students may interpret that. Um, so we really saw that in the textbook issues. And if you, you know, pull that a little bit broader into kind of how, you know, in American society, they kind of have viewed <clears throat> things coming out of India and Hinduism. So this has been a very, um, a, a very kind of, um, uh, intentional attempt to separate anything positive that Hinduism has brought to the world or done from Hinduism or Hindus, right? Yoga is a perfect example. Um, and, and saying that, you know, that is not Hindu, it's pre-Hindu, it's something else other than Hindu. But it, it, it kind of goes, I, I guess it's all connected in a way um, in that it's, again, going to this view that we cannot see Hindus as positive. You know, we have to see them as negative and therefore they cannot have had anything positive or done anything positive either throughout history. Yeah, it is. Again, I feel like because they made their minds up in back in the 60s about, okay, how are we going to look at India? Okay, when we look at India, Hindus are the oppressors and Muslims are the oppressed. So that is going to be our template for any discussion about India. So whenever something happens in India, let's look at our template. Okay, according to our template, Hindus are the oppressors and Muslims are the oppressed. So anything that happens has to be looked at through that lens. So what? So if Kashmir happens where Hindus and Sikhs and Shia Muslims and Buddhists, all of these people get equal rights, same rights as the Shia Muslims, that's not right because the people that are getting these rights are the oppressors. So the oppressors don't deserve it because they're the oppressors. The oppressed need to have special privileges because they're the oppressed. And... So in that discussion, because their brain is so warped by this oppressor-oppressed dichotomy, that they can't even seem to, that when, when you, you know, when you put this extra little condition in there, when you tell them, okay, 
Well, in Kashmir, what happened was that you had these scheduled castes and scheduled tribe people that were there, the Valmikis, that are that are actually historically disenfranchised in India. These are people that have actually been discriminated against, right, in Indian society. So these people were taken to Kashmir in in the 1950s for manual scavenging labor because the Kashmiris didn't want to do it themselves. And so they've been living there since the 50s. Their descendants are Kashmiris in every sense of the word, right? But even they don't have the rights that the Kashmiri Muslims have. So these are people that are historically disenfranchised where in in the Indian constitution, special provisions have been made so that these people can, you know, are not discriminated against. But in Kashmir, these people were still being discriminated against. And when you start having this discussion with somebody in the U.S., some, a liberal in the U.S., their brain starts to melt because it completely throws off their template. Oh, no, my, you know, oppressor-oppressed template is going haywire. So, yeah, so I feel like un, until and unless they stop looking at the entire world through this oppressor and oppressed template, things are not going to get better. Do you think there's also an attempt to kind of make bring that template here to the U.S. with Hindus even here in the U.S. and almost put us in the same category as white nationalists? And even if we have nothing to do with India and we're here in the U.S., suddenly we are, you know, these ultra privileged. Now, yes, you know, people, we, a lot of the Hindu. It's so funny that they, they group, you know, Hindus and Indians with white nationalists because you should go talk to white nationalists <laughs> and ask them what they think of Hindus and Indians. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, you know, that's... Uh, that's the kind of the rhetoric that we're starting to hear now. I mean, is that something that you've seen as well? And um, I guess, do you think that's just an extension of this attempt to kind of frame things in, okay, here's this oppressor victim template. And now in today's, you know, modern era, we're talking a lot about white nationalism. So, Hey, you know, this is kind of like a convenient category to put Hindus in as well. Um, Let's just do that. And it makes our arguments much easier. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like on the left and on the liberal side for the past few years, everything's become about who's the oppressor and who's the oppressed. And that's what the concept of intersectionality essentially is, that who's the most oppressed among us all? Whoever's the most oppressed among us all gets the loudest voice. And I I have no problem with the concept of intersectionality per se. I mean, it's 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 a real thing that, you know, people in, you know, black people in America and Mexican, Hispanic people in America have faced uh, oppression. They have faced discrimination. That's a real thing. So I am in no way arguing against that and their experiences because they're very real and very painful experiences. But to say that, that now my voice is more important than yours, you know, and People don't seem to realize what painful experiences Hindus have gone through. They've gone through some very painful experiences of their own. So, you know, the fact that Hindus don't get a seat at the table and a rung on the intersectional ladder is is hilarious to me. And look at what Jews have gone through, but Jews don't get a seat at the table or a rung on the ladder either. So... I have no problem with the concept of intersectionality, but the problem is that the way this concept is applied in American society and the American discourse is completely flawed. And that's the problem. And so because everything is intersectionality, because everything is oppression and oppressor, when you look at Hindus and you're trying to figure them out in the in the American sense, okay, where do we put these people, these new immigrants in the American intersectional sense? Well, we only we 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 can we have to club them with the white people because they're educated, they're successful, they work hard, they get into good colleges. All of these things that we associate with the white population also applies to the Indian population and the Jewish population, you know? So, we can't call them oppressed. They're not oppressed. They're not asking for handouts. They're not asking for help to get into Harvard and all that stuff. So, how can we call these people oppressed? So because they're not oppressed, the only other option is oppressor, right? There's no third option available. So if you're not an oppressed person, you're an oppressor. So that's how Hindus are viewed in America. 
Absolutely. And I think that also plays into the fact that whenever there's been a hate crime or an incident of discrimination against Hindus, it's automatically, oh, it's only stemming from Islamophobia or anti-Muslim bias, right? So sometimes that does play into it, but there are many times where it's just a broader discrimination against the other or hate against the other, but there's no recognition that Hindus themselves are actually victims, right? No, whatever the motivation, we are actually victims and we need to be treated as such as well. And, you know, nobody's saying that we're not trying to kind of compare and say, okay, well, we've had this many, you know, incidents and, you know, you have had this many incidents and therefore we should be treated in, in, in this manner. But yeah, I mean, when, when, whenever you see like a hate crime on a Muslim, right? People don't turn around and say, well, this happened because ISIS is killing innocent people in Syria, right? People don't come and make excuses for it. They say it's a horrible thing. It's racist. It's Islamophobic. It's anti-Muslim bigotry. And all of those things are correct because that's exactly what it is. If you attack an innocent Muslim for no fault of his or her own, then it's anti-Muslim bigotry. Simple as that. But when it happens to a Jewish person or it happens to a Hindu person, then it's, well, look at what the government is doing in Kashmir. You know, the government should really not do that stuff or these kinds of things will happen again. So you're basically placing the blame like in a sneaky way on the Hindu person for getting this hate crime happen on them. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. Well, Sham, I think we're coming to the uh, end of our time today, but um, really enjoy the conversation and um, hope to do it again. But wanted to give you the last word and see if there's anything that um, you wanted to just add to our conversation um, and put in a plug for your show, um, which is an amazing show. I'm a subscriber as well. Oh, thank um, you. And <laughs> anything else? Any last final, final words? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy that, uh, you know, the Hindu American Foundation is doing this kind of content. I think this kind of content is very important to get the Indian voice, the Hindu voice out there in the American consciousness. Hindu American Foundation has a very important platform. And so I think these, uh, you know, having these conversations, talking to people that might not have the exact same opinions as us, but are at least willing to hear us out is, is, is such an important step. So. I'm happy this we've we've started moving on this road and I hope to you know have more discussions with HAF in the future and we can we can get this voice or we can get this side of the story into the American consciousness that's the next goal and I'm happy we're we're taking that first step. Well that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you have any comments, questions or concerns, please email sohindu at hafsite.org. Thanks again for listening. 